Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy Howes, and I am the host of this podcast. Before we get into our guest today, Anshu Duvakot, I want to encourage you to sign up for Basic Folk's mailing list. You can do that at our website, basicfolk.com. There's like a red sign up for the newsletter button that you can click on. You can also stay in touch with us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Basic Folk Pod. We are listener supported. So if you want to pitch in a couple of bucks, you can head to the website, basicfolk.com. If you go to the store, you can get a Basic Folk beanie. It's $5 a month. It's a handmade beanie uh, made by my mom. Uh, and it has a little Basic Folk tag on it. It comes in an awesome color. Uh, it's a great situation because it's beanie season again. I know I said it a couple times. If you listen to this podcast a lot, I'm like a broken record. But anyways, your support really does help make a difference and help keep this um, keep this thing going. You know, it's it's all happening here on Basic Folk. I, I am beside myself about this interview today with Ancha Duvacot. So Ancha is confronting trauma with a newfound wisdom and fierceness on her new record, My New Wild West, her best in her 20-plus year career produced by her friend Mark Arelli. To put it plainly, Ancha, who moved to America from Germany at age 13, had a really rough time as a teenager. She was transplanted to a totally new universe with a new language she barely understood with unsupportive and abusive parents. 
She soothed herself with music, her first love. She sang and played guitar very quietly, which is translated to the musician she has become. Her voice can be soft, childlike, and playful, but it can also be strong and deep. The control is incredible. Not to mention this woman's observation of the world is profound. In each song, she creates worlds that come to life with her poignant lyricism. It's arresting and always unexpected. This interview was different for me in that Ancha and I have known each other for over two decades. And that's happened before on Basic Folk, but it feels like our careers started on the exact same day and we've grown together in this messy business. The story is that we met at Club Passim. Maybe it was a Gillian Welch tribute night and totally thanks to Matt Smith in Cambridge, Massachusetts around 2002. It took one song and I was floored. She gave me her CD. I took it and played it over and over again on the WERS Coffee House, which was the morning folk show there. Every coffee house DJ knew how to spell her name and would expect to field calls every time we played her music. That just doesn't happen anymore. It was right at the end of an era when radio could do that. From there, Ancha's career took shape, and I'll be forever grateful to her for that experience. It really felt like radio at its best, connecting a community with something it needed in an organic way. It's good to get back together in our conversation, and please excuse me if I'm a little too casual on this one. We're going to take a listen to a song from her new album, and then we'll get to our conversation with Ancha. Here is... Girl on a Wire, it's Ancha Duvacot on Basic Folk. Stardust, I was exploded onto the scene Out of my mom and pops only chance meeting My daddy slipped me a picture of a slingshot and a stone And he was gone there in my mama's apartment To put her blue dreams I stuffed my stars in compartments Where no one could see him And mama bended and caved To her vice and rage And eyes age descended So I filled my own cup Cause time was backed up They say time heals all wounds But who can grapple with that thick of a backlog like that When tick-tock Time is all we've got And as the ice age descending is that all that you got? I sure you are Duvacot, this is a big deal. Thank you for being on Basic Folk. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> yes, um, we have known each other for many years. The last time we saw each other, you stayed at my house and you parked. I, you were like, can I park anywhere? I was like, yep, park anywhere. And you did the most ancha thing ever. Like <laughs> you found like the one spot in the neighborhood where they took it that was like it was like an electric car yeah. parking spot. It was the one electric car parking spot I found it. Yeah. Um all right, I have a lot of important questions to ask you. Are you ready? You were born in Germany, lived in Heidelberg, and you have had a love for music since like before you could remember. Like I've read stories about you leaving the kids at the playground and looking for the adults playing music around a campfire. Um 
Where were you finding those musical adults? Like, what did the scene look like for you musically in Germany? Um, yeah, I was born craving music, as far as I remember. And my family was not musical per se. I would, I would think they did not even listen to music a ton. And I knew I loved it. And I remember being very young, like very young and just wanting to hear it. Um, and I remember feeling that sort of like helpless, impotent feeling where I'm just like, I really like this music thing, but I don't have um, access to it. So if I heard like a song on TV or something, I would try to memorize it and sing it to myself knowing, though, that there's like a small chance that I'll ever hear it again. And I remember feeling so frustrated at not being able to control like access to this thing that I loved so much. But I know that I did like anything in my power to get near it. Um, and lucky for me, back in those days in Germany in the 1970s, essentially, music was still like a thing that grownups did kind of culturally. Like there were like these old German folk songs that... Like, there would be these barbecue um, get-togethers, and my family would take me, and all the other kids were playing in the woods, but I would sit by the campfire and just listen to the adults singing these old folk songs. And that's something they did back then. Um, lucky for me, because <laughs> I just wanted more of the music. Uh, and then also wow. lucky for me in school, there was a lot of singing. So I think both the the yeah the folk songs of Germany, those old like songs from the youth movement... Um, they were being sung in school, like as part of the curriculum. And they were like songs from the 1800s, early 1900s about adventuring and being outdoors, like kind of campfire scouting songs. Hmm. And they were old. So I also feel like I was kind of tapping into some tradition of being outside and singing in German. Hmm. Do you <laughs> so. still feel a connection to those songs? Um, yes. I mean, they're hokey. Uh, they, I don't think kids in Germany would be singing them anymore nowadays. So I think I was kind of riding like the tail end of this historical phenomenon uh, where songs were being passed down. And I'm pretty sure that's dead now. But I mean, of course, they still live in my heart as like the first songs I ever learned. And they were very singable. <laughs> oh, wow. You lived in Germany until you were 13, which is like a very tender and formative age. How do you think your first 13 years in Germany have impacted the adult and also like impacted the musician, especially hearing about those German folk songs? Uh, how has that impacted the musician you are today? Um, I mean, that's a long question, as in it was obviously like a progression of events, but music instantly resonated with me. And I, as a kid, like I said, I, I would gravitate toward those songs and then at some point my parents gave me like a tape recorder and I like I was very good at self-entertaining I would just sing into this tape recorder and then sing along with myself and I think I spent my entire childhood like that like I was just like I don't know I was very like uh introverted in a way that I was obsessed with the music thing um the first song I ever wrote was about the horse that I was in love with um I used to go to pony camp <laughs> And there was a tourist named Henry. So I wrote the song about how much I love Henry. And then I sang it into the tape recorder by myself. So I don't know. I guess uh -huh. I maybe, maybe the tradition of sort of turning inward toward like expressing myself musically started early. Um, but, but I started playing guitar later. Actually, it's funny because in first grade, my parents did send me to guitar class, like classical guitar. Um, but I was a little lazy. I did not like the practicing element. 
And I had kind of an implicit agreement with my guitar teacher who was from like Eastern Europe somewhere. And he didn't really feel like teaching me and I didn't want to practice. And so we would get <laughs> together at these lessons and he would like be eating sandwiches and telling me about the old country. And I never told my parents that like we didn't do any guitar work <laughs> at those um, classes. Cause, and then I it, like, <laughs> I kind of gave up. So my, my first foray into guitar was nothing. Like I did not practice at all. Um, but then later, I guess, when I moved to the States, I had, um, I had a guitar and I started to, yeah, just kind of teach myself by ear. When you moved to America, you didn't speak any English and you didn't know anyone. Um, how do you think that experience has impacted the way you connect with others and make new friends? Um, yeah, so it's no secret that my move to the States when I was 13 years old in the middle of seventh grade was uh, a little bit formative in that it was such a rift from, like, I had a pretty, I would say, like, a happy childhood in Germany. I had, you know, my, my mom and my dad, um, I was integrated into the community. But then my mom divorced my dad and left him in Germany and brought me to the States. And I didn't speak much English and um she remarried and um that's when things got really hard like i didn't understand anything culturally i was so confused like i didn't understand what people were talking about in school and it just felt pretty left out at school <laughs> like um and then things that like hard at home things are difficult at home as well and so i spent that time like between the ages of 13 and 17 or so um, finding like real solace and safe space in music like it was the it was the only place where I was safe in a way like school was scary um, life at home was also scary actually but between school and like the evening I would walk around the neighborhood with a disc man and listen to music and it was just the only time in my day where I felt like not alone like these um I, that's when I discovered folk music so I discovered like John Gorka and Ellis Paul somehow I got my hand on like a rounder record compilation tape and you know I didn't have a lot of these tapes I probably had like five tapes total but I would listen mm. to them every day and I would just crawl into these voices like John Gorka's warm voice and the uh the acoustic guitar voice thing just really comforted me to the sound I was really drawn to the sound I don't know that I even mm. knew what the lyrics were about so I would say like music sort of saved me in during those high school years that were immensely difficult. And mm. as a result, I think it was clear to me that I need to do this because it was almost like I was so grateful for music having been my life raft that I it was a no brainer that I wanted to return that and mm. become that and, you know, go in that direction. So, I, you know, I don't know how other people come to music, but for me, it was almost like there was no other thing in the world that yeah. mattered to me during that time. So this is interesting to think about, like, since you were spending so much time alone, like what kind of relationship did you have with yourself and spending time with yourself? And like, how has that evolved? Um. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, the... I think I always wanted to reach out to people. I just didn't know how. Like, I didn't, from age 13 onward, I was culturally lost. Like, I didn't understand how to even fit in. Like, I wouldn't have had a chance. Like, kids at school were talking about things I just 
did not understand like tv shows and they kept like saying like i'm gonna give you a wedgie not to me personally but they would be saying to other kids like i'm gonna give you a wedgie and like i didn't even know what a wedgie was so like i, I never got a wedgie <laughs> but i felt so left out like not knowing what is going on here like what is a wedgie um, and then, like, there was all this weird gender stuff, like, on Valentine's Day, like, a boy's supposed to give you a valentine and walk you to your locker, and I was like, I don't know how to do this. So I think my, like, sense of sort of feeling like I don't know the code, the social code to how to, how to fit in, maybe that sort of started me on a journey of wishing I knew the secret of how to fit in. Um, and to soothe myself, I think I started to turn to music and develop this like inner world through music but I I in the end I really just wanted to reach out to people and in a way music helped me do that so I think like by becoming mm. a songwriter and practicing singing and becoming good at what I do I started to develop this thing that would draw people to me so even though I was wildly um shy people were like hey you you have a really good voice like let me hear you sing and so I think my very first bridge to people was my singing voice in a weird way huh. like it was my most extroverted feature that I could sing for people yeah yeah and I'm really grateful like that that early bridge to people um I probably would have figured it out another way too if I didn't have music but it's how I got myself over to the other side and be get, oh. became a part of something you know mm. I read that your parents were very pragmatic um, and super against you pursuing music and you choosing music as your career is a big reason why you don't speak to them anymore. Because of their perspective on the arts as being frivolous, what is your relationship to the appreciation of creativity? And maybe like second part of this question, how about your relationship with being practical? Um, Practical. So actually I might have to revise that question a little bit because I am I think like maybe the story used to go something like my parents didn't let me play music and that's true um but it was primarily my stepdad that forbid it and I think some for some people that's like practical concerns like the, their parents might want them to become a doctor or something like that instead but if I'm being completely like honest I don't think that's what it was like I think my step dad wanted to take the thing that I loved the most away from me um and it was more actually like more dark and nefarious than that Whoa. than just practicality mm. so um I think for me music was such a refuge and such a coping mechanism when I was a teenager and my stepdad was um abusive and I think he knew that this this was the thing that I that was giving me joy and so he he was driving the um the prohibition on music so I mean like it would take my guitar from me and, and but I was mm. it's funny because I play guitar really quietly and I was thinking about this like the other day like when I'm doing a sound check or something the engineer is usually like okay like play the loudest you're gonna get and I'm like yep nope that's it <laughs> like I just yeah. like quietly picking that's that's how I play um and I think that might have had its origin in those early days because I had to play like secretly under the radar and I had to play like below the hearing of my my parents and my and my stepdad mm -hmm. in particular so I I was I started my relationship with music in secret um and yet it was like my my ally in in surviving it I mean in in the end the I 
I'm I'm still very grateful to have had that, but it's it's an odd way to start <laughs> making music. It, it's felt surreptitious, and sometimes it still does. <laughs> Okay, so it cannot be overstated that music saved your life. It was a comfort. It was protection. It was family. I remember hearing stories of you like sitting in a closet quietly listening to Ellis Paul. Does music still impact you that way? Like, how do you relate to music now? Mm, yeah. Um, I still have such gratitude to music. I, I love it with all my heart in a way that I don't know. I don't know what it's like for other people, but I don't know what I would have done without it. But also, I'm highly aware that it was a placeholder, you know, it was a placeholder for intimacy and joy and safety, emotional safety, being seen. Like, I felt so seen by, like, also some of the early songwriters I listened to, like Dar Williams and Ani DiFranco, like I felt like they saw me and music saw me. But of course it wasn't a real relationship as in like Dar Williams and Ani DiFranco didn't know me personally or anything like that. Um, so I feel like it was a placeholder for like actually quite a long time and and a bridge. And I was able to, luckily I had some talent, so I was able to play play for people and then meet meet people in real life and slowly I think I I crossed over to actually have real relationships with actual people not just with like a song and and so my whole life has been this like kind of switch where my my allegiance you know has shifted like I I don't need music in the way I used to it's now it's more of a an add-on something that makes my life beautiful and I'm so grateful that it got me to this point but the balance is definitely shifted toward having it be something that's more like it's a nice thing in my life but it's not you know survival anymore (laughs) right can you describe what it was like to discover the therapeutic value of songwriting like before you discovered songwriting as a way Mm -hmm. to process your feelings like what was it like for you to actually like deal with your surroundings deal with your feelings Versus um, after you discovered songwriting. Oh, I, I wish I remembered sort of that transition. I mean, to me, it all was kind of simultaneously. Like, I right around when I was 13, when things got really hard, I also think I started writing songs shortly thereafter. So I don't remember having known an interim where I didn't have that, um, that, that way of processing my world. I do remember for a long time just writing songs by myself, for myself in this vacuum. And... Um, I did, there did come a point where I wanted to share them and I ended up, you know, making a little album. And then when people heard them, I think a new era started, namely that of like, uh, you know, disclosing my secrets in song to people. And I think like right around the time that that you met me, I was starting to have my material heard, (laughs) my songs heard. Um, And I remember that time vividly because... I had, you know, I, I've never known it. I've never known a different way of writing other than the raw, honest way. Um, and again, it wasn't so much a choice as it was a survival mechanism. So I don't know that I could have not been raw and honest because it really was like a 
necessity for creating some kind of healing and community. Um, but when people resonated with my songs and they, I got enough feedback that people were taking something away from my songs that was helping them. Um, I felt in some ways like vindicated to keep doing that. Like if, if my sort of like personal ruminations had not also resonated with other human beings, I don't think I would have kept doing it. But because it seemed like it was a win-win, like a healing for myself and for other people, which then it just after that, it just kind of became a way of life. But I think it wasn't a choice for a long time. Like I think I needed, I was just chasing this like desperate path for sharing and being seen by like a collective more than individuals through song. Um, but it felt like I would disappear if I if I didn't have that. So I just had to ke- keep writing and sharing myself. And it was raw and it kind of like in retrospect, it feels like I was just sort of like bleeding all over the stage, bleeding oh all over my albums. Um, maybe that's a little dramatic, but that's Do how it. I remember it. Be dramatic, bleed everywhere. <laughs> But Cindy, that's that's to say that I'm also really grateful that I don't have to bleed so much anymore. Like, oh yeah, it was good, and I'm. It was the only way to get to where I am now. But it didn't feel empowering as much as a necessity. Whereas now, for me, music mm. is um, it's more of a choice. Like, if I don't write a song today, and I never write a song again, and I never share a song again, I'll be okay. I don't need it. Um, mm. And so now I'm choosing it, and it, every song I write from here on out is um, a luxury and a choice and it feels much more empowered honestly (laughs) to be great you have a keen sense of curiosity and exploration and that is like your main method of practicing music like exploring instruments and sounds and I also wonder if like exploring poetry and wordplay and words in general is part of that play and creativity seems to unearth your inner child Mm. Um, do you feel like that's true? And like, how do you get into that state? Um, yeah, what what draws me to the form is probably less musicianship and more um, the vulnerability and the sharing part, as aforementioned. Um, I've never been that disciplined at like practicing <laughs> becoming virtuoso on guitar or anything like that, because I'm always so eager to create something new and write a song. Like I can't practice a guitar because I'm like, I'd rather write a song. I find the creative process and I'm just hungry for the creative process and creating something. Um, lyrics, metaphors, they kind of just come to me. I have a very metaphorical mind. So I think I think thoughts and instantly a metaphor comes along with with a thought I have. It's just the way my... How many metaphors have you been thinking of in this interview? <laughs> oh, many. I've, I've been a boat. I've been a tree. Like, <laughs> there's always <laughs> like an analogy that comes. It's it's really automatic. Like the other day I was teaching and I was thinking like, wow, when you're a teacher, you really need people's faces to like look at the faces and be like sure that they're following what you're saying. And then the minute I have a thought like that, I'm like, faces are like storefronts. They're like open for business and their lights are on or they're shuttered up. Like it doesn't, I don't work at metaphor. It just comes with everything I think. Wow. Um, so I'm really grateful that I have, um, that that actually helps me make a living because otherwise it would just be an annoying function of my brain that has like no purpose at all. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> you are like wired for songwriting. Yeah, I think that might be true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the chronological order of things. So you left home, you go to University of Delaware, Mm -hmm. where 
you are one of the top most influential alumna <laughs> of the University of Delaware, including Joe Biden. Apparently. You start crushing it immediately with music. You are winning open mics. You're selling homemade albums. You're getting attention. You try out New York. It didn't work out, right? Mm-hmm. You immediately leave and make it to Boston. Did we? Mm-hmm. I remember, I have a memory of like being in an apartment of yours in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I remember yeah. I put wow. I poured a glass of milk into one of your plants and you got mad at me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you were correct. I was like, oh, I didn't even think of that milk is like not good for plants. <laughs> it might have been good nutrients. <laughs> I just remember coming to your apartment and you had that rat named Rats. But that was later. That was in Boston. Yeah, that is yeah. old school. Um, but okay, so you make it to Boston. Can you refresh my memory? Like what made you come to Boston? Um, yeah, I I think it was you in a, in a indirect way. I mean, <laughs> New York was not happening. I didn't know where to start. You know, it was just overwhelming. But then WERS started playing my music up in Boston while I was still living in New York. And you single-handedly, like made me have a name in Boston because you spun my song Long Way, I think it was. Like, yeah, I think we met at a Gillian Welch tribute. Does that uh, sound familiar? Yeah, maybe. It was like a Gillian Welch tribute and I met Anais Mitchell the same night. Mm, wow. Big night for Cindy. We had some really good... I mean, I grew up with all these amazing peers in that in that era. Totally. Same. Yeah. It was a, It was a really great time and you i mean back then you had the the power i suppose to just play whatever you wanted to play right and you yeah you, and you, i and i haven't had it <laughs> since <laughs> <laughs> i mean it really was kind of the tail end of a time when like you spun me on the actual radio over the airwaves and it resulted in like cd sales and it resulted in my being able to start to make a living it, so much has changed since that time Let's set the scene. It's like 2002, 2003. You're in Boston. I was there um, working at WERS. You started lighting up the town, turning heads, selling out shows. Every morning DJ that worked at WERS, which had a folk show, a historical folk show that had been around for like, I think at that point it had been around for 20-ish years, um, called the Coffee House. Every Coffee Mm. House DJ knew how to spell Anshaduvakot. <laughs> we all practice how to say Anshaduvakot. We still don't say it correctly. But every time a coffeehouse DJ would play Anshaduvakot, they would expect calls like every time that it got played. And it was like... Just to ask like how to say my name. <laughs> yeah, like who is that? And then right. you'd say it and then you'd be like A-N-T-J-E. So like every single one of them knew how to do it. But... It was nuts, you know, but, Mm. and I'm not sure like what you thought your career was going to look like, but it seemed like you were poised for like something like pretty huge based on like what we were all experiencing firsthand. Um, How do you feel about the way your career started? Like after going through that story, like versus like what your career became? I mean, it really did start in this beautiful way where like you said like I was getting radio airplay um and I got to headline at Club Pasim shortly thereafter which to me was just like this amazing mythical place 
um, and I met some of my friends. You know, I, I got to be part of that actual community because the community around Club Pasim at that time and still today is so warm and personable and artists are excited about each other's songs like it, it, I didn't feel that way in New York New York felt scattered and competitive and and then um when I started to get some traction up here in Boston not only did I feel like I should probably live where where things are happening but I also wanted to be part of that physical community with with Matt Smith and, and all the people who are now all like you know on doing great things like um and I moved in with some other musicians like Chris O'Brien and it was just such an exciting time it was really the first time I felt belonging like I write songs all these mm. people I'm meeting write songs and it was so exciting because we were all standing at the beginning like this like full of hopes and dreams era yeah it was really like one of my favorite times in my life actually and then the kind of like the crowning um the next step that I think really pushed me toward becoming a professional musician was that Ellis Paul took an interest in me he's a um, Boston-based singer-songwriter that already had a pretty strong career and he heard me play uh, in Philly actually and he got me to his manager Ralph Jackadine and he signed me and I think from then on like the year 2004 I was able to make a living in music because CD sales is a big part of that like wow. I was able to open for Ellis Paul and sell like 50 CDs in a night and suddenly I could quit my you know my <laughs> whatever I don't even want to call it day job I was just doing random things like waitressing or nannying or um, yeah. I was able to quit all that and from that day Onward, I've been making my living in music, which is a miracle. <laughs> this brings us to the topic of scrappiness. <laughs> um, another reason you found Boston to be more your speed is because it's less fancy. It's like more folky. Mm. Uh, and Ancha, you are one of the most scrappy people I have ever met. And I say that. <laughs> With lots and lots of love. I know. Um, we, we have traveled together, and you are the most budget traveler. Like, you are not fussy about anything. <laughs> Except for apparently milk in my, in my pot of plants. Oh, yeah, that was the only thing. I was like, I'm just not going to care if I, oh, right. I guess she is. <laughs> I also will say when Ancha and I went on a road trip one time, she picked me up in Atlanta, and we drove to Philly, and she was like, I have an infestation of ants in my car. Hope that's okay with you. And I was like, ah, Sorry about I became that. okay with it. Yeah, I became okay with it. Um, where do you see your scrappiness and how does it make its way into your music? <laughs> it's so funny because I was just teaching um, a songwriting camp with Ellis Paul and he introduced me as when he first met me and I walked into the Tin Angel he was like, who is this woman? She's like a forest creature. And I wasn't sure if she was homeless. Like, So he has a similar description of me at the time. Um, and I was, there were times I was living in my car. Yeah, you know, I had this single-minded dream to, I just wanted to pursue art. I didn't, I don't think I was like very um, obsessed with like material possessions or fame for that matter. Like I was hungry. Like I feel like some people, I was hungry for the creative process and for art itself. Like I, I think some people, maybe peers were more hungry for recognition and fame. And I just didn't have that. I was hungry for the expression part of things. Um, but maybe what that also ended up, um, what that might have led to is that I didn't necessarily pursue all the like smart um, career moves because I was, I'd rather write a new song than go to, folk conference or something like that 
I didn't have like business acumen. Um, so anything that happened to me with my music career was more luck than by design. But I, I got lucky a, a few times along the way. So, and you're spinning my song was one of them. Ellis Paul discovering me and taking it absolutely upon himself to, to give me a leg up. Like I never asked anyone for help. I was a little too humble for that. So Alice Paul took me on the road for a year and a half and shared his fan base with me. And that really set me on a, on a good course towards selling show, selling out shows or, or, you know, doing this for a living. And then also I got lucky with um, the band Solas, their Irish, Irish band. And they, some I got a hold of a demo tape of mine that I sent to a friend of a friend's friend who was an A&R guy, like, and he found it in his couch cushions, like a very roundabout way that this person <laughs> heard my songs, got them to Solas. They covered a lot of my songs and took me on the road with them. But all these things were just really random. <laughs> like if I could do it all over again, I maybe the rant the <laughs> random Super Bowl commercial in two thousand seven. Right. Yeah, like the son of the creative director at Hill Holiday ad agency was at camp and he heard my song and his dad like put me in a Bank of America commercial um, with a song of mine, which was like really lucrative and helped me you know but these things are not things I sought out in any way so in retrospect I do wonder if you know if I had been a little bit more like had a little more agency whether things would have gone differently but I got lucky a few times (laughs) yeah just doesn't seem like you were interested in that like you weren't like obviously you weren't like thumbing your nose up at Bank of America or anything but it like wasn't part you didn't have like a strategic plan which yeah seems like it's okay yeah I don't I don't want to like pride myself in that it's I don't want to perversely pride myself in like being like a pure artist who's not like interested in commercial endeavors because I don't see it that way I think part of it was also me being too scared um to just say like hey listen to me I'm I'm good like I should have done that um so I don't romanticize the that path or that like philosophy um but at least I kept, I mean, I was very driven regarding my art and I still am. So hopefully that goes, hopefully that counts for something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that's cool yeah. to hear about the creative drive. You are an introvert. We've talked about this a little bit in our conversation right now. How do you balance that with being a traveling stage performer in a world that requires you to engage with all sorts of people? Well, actually, I i mean, I was on the road pretty hardcore for 10 years or so. I was on Fleming um, Booking Agency, and they, they, they were hoping I would be the next best thing, so they booked me hard. So I was touring a lot. And to be honest, it was actually the most lonely time of my life. It, it sounds social, mm-hmm. but it's really not. You actually spend most of your time in the car or at rest stops talking to nobody. Um, so... I got awfully lonely when I was on the road that much. Like it was hard for me to build a a life with people that recur. (laughs) So, I mean, you would meet people, you know, at shows and then you would even like really connect with them and be like, I I could be a friend. Also, I'll see you never again. Bye again. And then you just lose people to the universe and they never recur in your life. And yes, that is so antithetical to what an introvert wants. Like an introvert wants a small group of friends that they see like all the time versus meeting new people and getting that like thrill of commanding a room. I don't have that. Um, As an introvert, I 
I don't really want to meet lots of new people. Um, so in that sense, maybe it's kind of misaligned with my with my job. But I love writing songs and I love creating that shared experience and that space mm. of intimacy and sharing and truth. So that is the introvert part of me that definitely gets fulfilled in performing. It's the kind of going deep. So it's a weird combination because it's like that there's yeah. a shallow surface stuff, like talking to people at the CD table that I'm like not at all made for. But the sharing um, deep things part is absolutely my speed. So it's I make yeah. it work. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this record, New Wild West. It's your fifth studio album. Here's what the bio says. It marks the pivotal juncture of your mid- of midlife and represents a new rung on the ladder of healing from trauma. Cool. <laughs> Woohoo, trauma. This is sexy stuff. <laughs> really sexy stuff. Middle age? Middle you age. kidding? I know. Great. Yay. <laughs> Ancha, what's been your relationship to aging? Really good. So, yeah, when I was writing that bio, actually, a friend of mine was like, are you sure you want to lead with trauma in middle age? Um, I was like, yeah, no, I do. Um, I know it doesn't have that sort of sparkly sound, but um, what it means to me is is positive. Like, I am so grateful for middle age. It's a time of finally, finally finding um, my voice and I think a lot of other people in this time of their life start to like know who they are and stop apologizing for it. It's a, it's kind of a wonderful time. And also it's a time where I feel more distant from the early trauma of my teenage years. Like mm. I finally feel like I have a, a handle on it and I'm, I like who I've become, but it was hard won. And so to me, the record and this time in my life is a total celebration of finally having the strength to like a lot of the songs on this album really I think talk directly to trauma and they they um they fight back in a way like I think Mm -hmm. my early work was just kind of like I gotta share this here's a song about um something that makes me feel sad and isolated it's hard um and then I would hope that someone else would relate to it whereas now I think my songs are a little bit more they have more like anger and edge and fights and they're kind of like, yeah, trauma, I see you, but you know what? You, you can't hurt me anymore. I've got this, like I'm bigger than you. Um, and this is just something that happened over time. Like I, I do kind of, I'm able to look at my songs as a reflection of where I'm at because I am so unfiltered for better or for worse. So it's nice though to be like, oh, look at the songs I'm writing now. Okay. I, I think um, like I, I like them, not just artists, you know, because I like them, but I like them because of what they represent to myself, as in I've come a long way. And I'm really excited to share this with people and hopefully also give people hope that this, I I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've kind of like grown in kind of a public way. Like my entire like process from healing from trauma has been public which which can be tricky. So like the other day someone came to my show and they were talking to me after and they said, you know, it seems like you always have one wheel in the ditch. And when I heard that, I was kind of taken aback because I was like, huh, is that how I come across? Like I never, um, I don't think of myself that way. Like I think of myself more as like, I share because I want to help other people get their wheel out of the ditch. Like I, I feel like I'm more like I'm triple A, like I pull people out of the ditch. But this person saw me as having some kind of like a, a flaw, like a compromised I don't know. I don't exactly know what he meant by that. But 
I don't know. I, I believe in the mission. I believe in the mission, using art to like honor the the experience that is life, and sometimes it's really hard. And also to celebrate the the advances. Like I mean, I mean, if I have one wheel in the ditch, I have three wheels on the road, and I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> so I want to like celebrate. Way that. to turn it around. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I don't know, I, I just like, maybe I just assume that I'm just going under the assumption that other people have, um, you know, don't have everything figured out either. And therefore, I feel like it's a service and it's a gift. And to, to, um, to be honest in music. What's it like for you to create music that feels like it's protecting you and protecting others the way that the music of your teen years did? Yeah, so okay, so maybe I want to talk about how protected I felt by my heroes. So especially there's Dar Williams. I she mm, I don't know, she just made me feel so seen with her songs, all of them. And she she was real. Like she talked about insecurity and isolation and she has a song about therapy and she talks about like how it's like being um, behind the Berlin Wall, she's like, I could see their fireworks, I could hear their radio, and I, I think in that when she wrote that song, she's kind of talking about being shut in, like being like seeing the world of people, but at least this is how I interpret it, but not being able to participate and not knowing how to get to the other side um, and be part of people. Um, I think that's a strain that runs through Dora Williams lyrics and it spoke to me so deeply because at the time that I was listening to her I was feeling that way and I was just so grateful that someone else in this universe feels that way and they're making it so beautiful with um songs and they're singing about it and it held me it, it held me in a, in a safe kind of way and same with Ani Franco. like she was able to talk about things that I didn't know that you were allowed to talk about in songs like mm. raw things and so because they did that for me I decided that it was almost like my my job to do that for other people, even though it's definitely hard sometimes and it's definitely vulnerable. Yeah, some people might see it and be like, oh, that's that's unbecoming, like, oh, wow, you're sharing a lot. And like, and then they can, I mean, they can try to make you feel bad about it. And I, I, I have struggled with that. Sometimes like this, the comment about like the, the um, one wheel in the ditch thing, I was like, oh, gosh, do I... Um, do I come across that way? Should I rein it in? Should I just be a little more antiseptic in what I talk about? But then when Can I have I that something? thought, yeah. Can I just say something? It just fucking shocks me, like what men think they can say to women. Um. Yes. Can I? Okay. That's all. It's often <laughs> men. I'm sorry, but this is the truth. <laughs> um. Yeah. The yeah. He he said like I'm worried about you. It seems like you always have one wheel in the ditch. And I was like, who oh. are? Who do you think you are? That's not your right to to comment like that. Right. Um, yeah, that happened, but it happens. So this is something that when you're a public figure of sorts, this will happen. So you have to kind of find ways to deal with it. And at first I can like end up reeling from it a bit. But then when I ask myself like like this Anne Franco lyric, would you prefer the easy way? No, well, okay, then don't cry. No, I wouldn't prefer the easy way. I believe in the mission. I'll keep doing it. But sometimes you have to kind of regroup and recommit to vulnerability. <laughs> oh, you are lighting me up right now. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about a man we love, Marcarelli. Yeah. Uh, he produced this record. This is your best record. 
Um, and I feel like you found your producing partner, and I'm pretty pumped about it. Oh, thanks. Why do you think this works so well with Mark? Mark is such a sensitive musician. I don't know that I've run into anyone with his musicality before. Like, he never, ever overplays. He always just makes the most gorgeous choice. It's always so, like, targeted and mindful. And um, I was watching him play the other day, and sometimes he barely, like, touches the strings. Like, he his dynamic range... I mean, he's just a, an unspeakably amazing musician. And I don't mean in a sort of, like, he's got the chops, though he does, but his feel is... Um, it's moving. So like that tour when you and I um, got together and Mark was touring with me when he would play with me on stage and you came to the show, um, I wanted to live there. I was just like, wow, I've like never been backed up by someone where I just feel like he takes my um, my sound to like heaven. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I was a, I was and still am pretty starstruck by Mark because he has this musicality that I could only dream of. Um, so when he was playing with me, I was like, wow, 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 wow. If only, if only I could just like bottle this up, but I'll just take what I can get. But after the tour, like I had told him I'm making an album and he was like, you know, um, I'd like to put my hat in the ring for producing. Oh, right. On. And when I got that email, I was like, yes, like I didn't, <laughs> I wrote back like right away. I was like, this does not require any thought or consideration. The answer is like, Hell yes. And so I wrote back literally mm. within seconds, like, yes, 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 please. And so he produced the entire thing and he plays like any instrument. Like he played basically almost all the instruments on the record. We had a couple of outside players, but I don't know how he, how there's that much talent in one man, but he's a freak mm. of nature. <laughs> Your singing voice is, I don't know, it's just its just like a roller coaster. It's awesome. Um, you have several different shades to your singing voice. Here are three takeaways uh, that I have compiled of the Ancha voice. There's like the very strong, um, beautiful Ancha voice. There's the fragile glass china voice and the spooky deep voice that maybe is a little scary. Nice. If you were my mother and you used that voice, I would do whatever you said because I would be frightened. Um, But like really (laughs) in the the singing way, it's like very effective. Uh, What do you think about each of your voices and how are you using them to express these songs? Hmm. I mean, I've always liked my voice. So like of all the things that I've definitely managed to be insecure about in my life, um, my voice was always something I felt so pleased with but it's been fun to discover more and more facets of it voice is so alive like it changes from day to day and I love that especially in a recording sense like if I sing in the morning it's a different animal than if I sing Mm. in the evening and you can kind of learn to control your voice as you go but not entirely there's an element of like it's its own live animal and you can maybe ride it but you can't fully harness it but I love that mystery metaphor (laughs) Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's always the metaphor. <laughs> um, so I love That's that. Cool. I love that you can't totally know how to make it magic. Otherwise, it wouldn't be magic. <laughs> All of these songs are great, but the the one that, that really had me wondering about was Girl on a Wire. 
and it revisits that tightrope metaphor from your 2009 song Vertigo from the album The Near Demise of the High Wire Dancer where the protagonist says, I will break all my bones, I lied about the vertigo. So in this song, the protagonist sings that she walks a tightrope in the eye of the storm. Okay, so first of all, a couple questions about this song. What is it with the tightrope metaphor? Well, it's such a precarious... It's such a precarious uh, visual, like being on a tightrope, you know, it's like scary and vulnerable. <laughs> I'm sure that's where um, that came from in both songs, actually. That's cool that you that you had like, um, you have like a part two. I didn't set out to do that. Probably metaphors recycle, you know, because... <laughs> oh, right. In your own mind, you, you can... Often <laughs> now that we're in middle age... Yeah, they're coming back around. Yeah, repurposing arsenal. old content. <laughs> But it's funny that it changed in that way. I, again, I didn't. That's it. All happened subconsciously. But apparently, in the song Vertigo, I'm just afraid of falling from the tightrope and breaking all my bones. And like, I'm an imposter. Like, what am I even doing up here? Like, I'm up here, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it'll not end well. And then in this song, Girl on mm-hmm. a Wire, I'm like, I was thinking of that of that movie, um, Man on a Wire, where he walks between the two World Trade Centers as an act of art. Um, beautiful tightrope dancer. Um, and I was thinking about like he he's he knows he's not going to fall, and I felt like more like I was channeling him in this last song. Like I've got this, like it's precarious, but I've totally got this. And not only that, I'm a girl. Like s- something that bothered me about that documentary is that he, the um so it's called Man on a Wire, and um I think it was a French guy who endeavored to walk between the two world trade centers. He illegally strung a wire between the two. It was an amazing feat of public art. But they they made a documentary about him, and the whole time... He's the he's the star, but he has a girlfriend, and she appears in the documentary, and she's kind of just like a supportive character, but she's also a tight rope walker. And so there's a bit of like a feminist feel. I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm a girl on the wire. Like, you can keep your Phoenix, SpaceX, Richard Branson. This is me flying. This is me dancing. I walk a tightrope in the eye of the storm. Give me your back. Clash Cardi B warned me. Um, you hang in place, sir, just like your world. But I'm yeah, I'm the man on the wire, not the wireman's <laughs> girl. So I think that all came from like some sense of like anger around mm. like the man getting the credit. So yeah. there's also just this feminism that I think has been creeping up more in my writing. Like it's so funny how feminism takes a while to mature. Like when I was younger, I don't think I would have even called myself feminist, even though I I should have. I just didn't yet have the perspective of like recurring insult that kind of adds up over the course of a lifetime. Like now that I'm middle age, I'm like thinking back. I'm like fuck that, fuck that, fuck that. Like all this, <laughs> like all these ways in which when I was young, I was just like oh whatever. Um, and now I think I'm just finding this like stronger female rage and I don't Mm. know where that's gonna go in my writing either like I wouldn't be surprised if my next album is like more edgy and angry still but it's it's happening and that song I think is maybe a manifestation of that (laughs) that's cool yeah that line definitely stuck out to me I am the man on the wire it reminded me of like um Nico Case has a song I'm a man um and Tammy Tammy Nielsen her record she put out last year is called Kingmaker. She's calling herself a king on the album. Mm-hmm. 
Ugh, I, I love, love that. songs like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I wasn't going to ask you about God, but then you went and ended the record with Bob Dylan's Ring Them Bells, which is a song that was inspired by the Gospel of Matthew, and these bells proclaim the end of humankind. That's what the Gospel of Matthew says. But what an interesting song to close the record. Beautiful performance. I love everything about it. Your voice, every like every note that you sing is so interesting, and I like actually can't wait to hear it again. But what do the bells symbolize to you, and like why is this the album closer? Hmm. Okay, I'm not gonna have a very good profound answer for that. Um, during COVID, I was just putting out a lot of sort of weekly uh, cover songs to kind of get like people. Don't you staying. dare give me this answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ancha. And I just like my <laughs> performance of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an awesome performance for sure, and like I would like listen to Dylan's version like right after it, and it's it's like, very cool what you did with the cover. Like, it is such a religious song, and you yeah. are, like, you're, like, a questioning atheist, as far as I know. Yeah. I think I, I want something like that, something more, I want to be able to access more spirituality, so maybe it's a bit of me, like, stretching. <laughs> I was going to write down my take on it, but yeah. I was going to allow you to give well, your take. I'd love to so hear I, your take. You're just, like, ending it on such a, a spiritual note for yourself, like, you're the bells, and you're gonna you're gonna save yourself. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's not super yeah, like profound because I didn't write it down. <laughs> no, I like that. It maybe I did want to end the album in kind of peaceful, larger than myself way. Maybe mm. sometimes, yeah. Man, I'm totally fishing here and making you come up with all of these. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Your questions are always provocative and <laughs> out of the box. Oh, thanks. Well, I hope that um, my – so we're about to do the lightning round, um, and I hope that I haven't been too familiar in this interview. I just love you so much, and I have such a lot of fun talking to you, and I don't get to do it that often. So I hope I haven't been too silly. Oh, God, no. I, I'm, so, I'm so amazed with what you've done. I mean, you were already amazing at what you do back then, but – um, oh you're so good at what you do <laughs> and I, uh, I love also that you that like you go deep with people that's part of why i was excited to do this podcast so. sweet oh great all right now let's have some fun thank you very much let's have some fun let's do the lightning round all right all right Auntie Ducat, what is your favorite german treat oh um domino stein it's a christmas pastry who brings you the pastry um i guess nikolaus <laughs> yeah okay what is your favorite method of transportation? Train. Who's your favorite person to sing with? Um, Alice Paul. <laughs> oh. What was your first concert? Phil Collins from behind. I, I had seats that were behind him. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Where is the weirdest place you have ever practiced music? Um, uh, I don't know. In the stairwell in my dorm. That's not very weird, but I spent a lot of hours there. <laughs> Right. It was a time. Okay, Ansha, it's the prom. How are you wearing your hair? <laughs> I never I never did the hairspray thing, so just like normal. <laughs> like normal. Okay. Yeah. Messy bun. Uh, probably bangs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Where's the most beautiful place in the world? 
Big Sur, California. Ooh, good answer. Ansha, thank you so much for talking to me. Congratulations on the new album, New Wild West. It's amazing. I'm so glad you like it. Thank you. (laughs) So wonderful to catch up with you. Likewise, Cindy, and I hope I see you next time in Pittsburgh. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, or you can go to the SiriusXM app and search for Basic Folk. You can find us wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Maybe you can share it with that friend who had her dog outside the folk club one time and this guy walked up to her and was talking to her like he had met her before. And then he was like, wow, your dog got fat. And then you're just like, couldn't believe the things that men say to women just because they don't know what to say to them. Anyways, send that to your friend. I think she would really enjoy this episode. All right. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Talk to you later. Mm, Bye. 